right. Well, Redeemer Kids, ages four to six, can join Kyle and Kelly right over here. Guys, just a quick word. I I just want to say thank you to all of you. I I love this church in that though we happen to be few this week, um, man, you guys serve in amazing ways. Uh, there have been a lot of people this week that have had a lot going on, whether that be working on people's houses or helping people move or helping uh, the Billingsleys uh, with their new additions to their family and sicknesses not associated with, but just happenstance with that. Uh, and even, man, Aaron Capper didn't know he was going to be leading the music until 6 o'clock this morning because Caleb is sick and he couldn't be here. So, guys, that's tremendous. Thank you for all the ways that you have, have just so readily and ably served the body of, uh, of Redeemer. Uh, you guys are a blessing. Um, let's, let's pray for our time together, pray for our kids, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for all the grace that you've shown us in Christ. Lord, I thank you for redemption. I thank you for salvation. I thank you for how you draw us together as a body of believers to encourage one another and build one another up, to pray for one another and serve one another. And God, I just thank you so much for this church and all the ways that you have used this body, even this week, to do that. Lord, help us to be diligent, to continue to pray for one another and encourage one another in practical ways. And it's just a delight to see how you're doing that in and among us. Lord, we pray for our kids Lord, as they go up there to receive uh, instruction uh, from you, Lord, I pray that uh, it would convict their hearts of sin and their need for Christ, that they would see the truth and beauty of Jesus and they would long uh, to live for him. And as we meet down here and we talk about what it means to train up our children, um, that you would challenge us, that you would comfort us, that you would unsettle us, Uh, And that you would guide us toward a desire to make disciples of our children. Lord, that's what we want. And so uh, may your um, spirits be upon uh, the word as it is proclaimed uh, this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, if you wouldn't mind, please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We're only looking at one verse this morning. Uh, verse 4, uh, let you know I could preach two sermons on this, this verse. I'll just stick to one. Um, but it's, it's packed full. You can find it on page 979 in the Bibles in the chairs. If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd invite you and welcome you to turn there. Now we're talking about, uh, this word is to parents in particular. Parents as they relate to their children. And, and I think we can all agree that we want what is best for our kids. Can we not all say that this morning, that that we want what is best for our children? We want them to live happy and full lives. We want them to have great experiences. We want them to receive the best education. We want them to have a rewarding and successful career. We want their happiness. We want to maximize their success, and we want to minimize their suffering. We want our kids to do well, and we want our kids to do good. We want our kids to be moral and not immoral. And through it all, we want our kids to love us and not hate us in the process. Am I right? Now, it's a good thing that we want what is best for our kids. But do we always know how to go about it? Do we always know what that is? Now, no matter if you're new to this parenting thing, or maybe you're here and you're just you're a casual observer, you don't have kids, but you've been around parents, it doesn't take long for us to figure out that desiring our kids' best does not result in our kids' best. Right? We've seen this. We've all been children. We all know that this is true. Like Even if we've had the greatest parents who have intended our best, they, it doesn't always produce our best. We can't make that happen. No matter how much we plan and labor and worry and scramble, we cannot guarantee their best. And let's face it, oftentimes it's our efforts for their best that's the biggest problem. That in all of our laboring, all of our scrambling, all of our striving seems to make things worse rather than better. 
And so what do we do at that point? Well, we just kind of turn over to the professionals. Let's seek professional help. Let's get some help from the outside so that we can be better at parenting. But that doesn't seem to work. And so then we decide, okay, we'll fill our schedules and theirs with activities and trainings and programs, hoping that these things will result in their best. And, and they help, but there still seems to be so much that is lacking. So maybe we think to ourselves, okay, maybe, maybe if we pursue wealth, if we pursue comfort, if we pursue ease, if we pursue entertainment, maybe that's our children's best. Maybe it can be found there. And so we strive for those things, the American dream, but that doesn't fix things either. And so often what I hear in parent after parent after parent after parent is just how fleeting those years go by. They're here and gone so fast and are so often squandered in our mad dash to pursue their happiness. All in a desire for their best, we end up wasting our time with them. Well, friends, I, I want you to take heart because you are not the only one that wants what is best for your children. And praise God for that. God wants what is best for them as well. But the difference between your pursuit for their best and His is that He knows absolutely what that is. He knows absolutely how we should go about doing that. And He knows absolutely where that can be found because He Himself is their best. This morning we're going to be hearing from the One who is our children's best as to how we, as their parents, are called to pursue their best. God has placed you in your children's lives and have given you this desire for their best to be the primary means of helping them to receive their best. A best that cannot come from the best that this world has to offer, but a best that comes from God Himself who has planned and who has purposed and who has implemented and who is fulfilling this in their lives. And parents, you have an integral part to play. This morning, we are going to see from Ephesians 6, verse 4, that parents display the glories of Christ by faithfully discipling their children. It is parents who display the glories of Christ by faithfully discipling their children. And so read with me Ephesians 6, verse 4. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now I have two parts to this message this morning. The first is we're going to look at God's plan for the family. And then second, we're going to look at God's process for the family. Okay, So that's basically how we're going to break it down. And again, I've got two sermons worth of content here that I'm doing in one. So you have to bear with me. It irks me really, really bad to let some things go by. But I'm hoping that in a couple of weeks, Caleb will be able to clean up the mess that I made. So let's go ahead and look at the plan, God's plan for our families, God's plan for our parenting, God's plan for our children. God's best for our children is God. It is not a golf swing. It is not a list of achievements, accolades, or degrees. It is not a high-paying job. It is not a long line of attractive and available suitors to marry. It is not a nice home or a nice family of their own. The best that the creator and sustainer of the universe has for your children is God. There is no greater hope. There is no greater aspiration. There is no greater prayer for our children than that they receive God's best, which is God. There is nothing better, nothing more beautiful, 
Nothing of greater value or of infinite and eternal worth than God. And if God is committed to giving His best to His children, which passages like Matthew 7, verse 10, suggest that He is committed to giving His children His best, then that best that God can give to them is Himself. And if our Heavenly Father has committed to giving His best to our children, then we as their parents, must ultimately be concerned about seeking that His children, whom He has placed in our care, receive His best as well. That must be our supreme purpose. Before sports, before education, before careers, before family, the ultimate purpose of our parenting must be for their best, which is God. Now we see this through the storyline of Scripture. Every page of Scripture points us to this end. The goal of the Gospel, the purpose of creation, the fall, redemption, and consummation is that we might receive God as our best. That we would be God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And so I want us to think for a few minutes about the storyline of Scripture just broken down into those four categories and what impact that ought to have on how we parent our children. And if you're failing to see how this connects to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, let me tell you. Well, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4 is part of Ephesians. And the entire book of Ephesians tells this storyline. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Okay, And the book of Ephesians is part of a greater canon of Scripture that tells the one main story of creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Okay, So, so in case you're wondering what I'm doing or where I'm going, I'm staying with this text, but I'm telescoping out so that we can see the big picture and how it relates to everything else. Because this verse does not stand in isolation. Okay? The first stage of salvation storyline is creation. We read about this in Genesis 1 and 2. Why did God create man? This is essential for the way we think about our kids. Why did God create our kids? Because they are part of mankind, right? Was it because God was lonely? Because God needed them to somehow complete himself? Well, absolutely not. What about this? Did God create man so that man could devote himself to frolicking in a garden paradise with cuddly furry animals, basking in the sun with his naked wife, being fruitful and multiplying, eating delicious fruits, and occasionally walking with God when it is convenient and comfortable in the cool of the day? Well, it's not that either. Right? Now, these are some of the blessings that come from creation. But God's purpose for creating mankind was so that we might reflect God. We were created to image God, to display His character, and to display His authority to all that He has made. That is God's purpose for your children. This is why God made them. And so when we think about our kids and creation the stage of God's storyline of redemption, we can affirm that children are gifts from the Lord. They are a blessing. They're meant to be enjoyed. They're meant for us to take pleasure in them. But the primary reason that God made them was so that they can image Him. And yes, God has given them every good and perfect gift in His creation to be enjoyed, but that is not the purpose of their lives, so that they can make much of enjoying all of the blessings that come from God and miss out on God. They were created to image Him. That is the purpose of their creation, not to frolic in a garden paradise with animals and fruits and productive jobs and intimacy with their spouses. Our children are gifts from God created by God and for God. And for this short time, they have been placed in our care so that we, as their parents, might help them to image God. Now, the next stage of the salvation storyline is mankind's fall into sin. This is Genesis 3 throughout the entire Old Testament into the New Testament. And let's face it, that's still living and well today. Okay? The Bible tells us 
that the reason why our lives don't look like Adam and Eve's lives in Genesis 1 and 2, complete with all of the benefits of frolicking in paradise, is because man chose to rebel against God. In a foolish attempt to be like God, to live their lives without Him, as if this is my world and I am God, they saw this one command that they were given. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Right? They saw this is the one command that they had. But they disobeyed it. They saw that the fruit was a delight to the eyes, that it was attractive. They saw that it was good for eating. Right? It was good for them. And that they would be like God, knowing good and evil. They thought that they could be like God and not need God anymore. And so they believed the serpent's lies rather than God's truth. Let me say that again. They believed the serpent's lies rather than God's truth. They thought... God was withholding something good from them. Something that might be better than God. And so they took of the fruit and they ate it. And their eyes were opened and they were ashamed. And so they hid themselves from God. Now all of those gifts that God had given them were still present. There was still fruit. There was still work. There was still marriage and sex. You could still pet some of the animals. But yet, everything was twisted and corrupted and subject to decay. It was frustrated. It was changed. It was fallen. And mankind, from that point on, would live their lives in death and toil and futility all the while setting their hearts on those corrupted earthly gifts, but would never be able to satisfy the desires of their hearts. And though they tried and tried and tried to find their satisfaction in the gifts, they could not do it. Because the one thing that was missing, the one thing that kept their souls from being full, was their relationship with God. They didn't have the same intimacy with God that Adam and Eve had in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2. And so, mankind from that point forward, century after century after century after century, would try to find meaning and try to find satisfaction in the sinful pursuit of power and pleasure and productivity and progeny and the praise of men, but to no avail. It could not satisfy. It led only to futility and to frustration. All of their efforts to pursue what they believed to be their best apart from God led only to sin and misery, death, dissatisfaction, and decay. They pursued any and every avenue that they could find to satisfy their souls, but Solomon put it well in Ecclesiastes when he said that it was vanity. All of it was vanity, a chasing after the wind. Now how does this part of God's plan apply to our children? Well, if we're going to honestly assess our kids, we know that they're little sinners, right? They're cute. They're sweet. They are sinful. But they have those same sinful tendencies within themselves. They seek to find their satisfaction in any and all of God's gifts, but not in God. And they show us daily, over and over again, that they are sinners who cannot and will not follow God with all their hearts, souls, minds, and strength. And yet, here's the problem. We recognize that our kids are sinners. But the problem is when we as parents spend the vast majority of our time with them, encouraging them and training them and teaching them towards the same futile ends. All in the name of their best. Better education a good job, skill in a variety of extracurricular activities. We push them towards relationships, towards starting a family and procuring wealth for themselves. We model a lifestyle of comfort and ease and pleasure speaking and we barely spend a fraction of our time and energy teaching and training them towards their true need, towards what will bring them true satisfaction to their souls. We are fallen sinners who tend to lead our children towards sin far more often than we teach them and train them and lead them towards their true need of God. This is what happened throughout the course, the history of God's 
people who are living in rebellion to God. And this so often is what happens in our hearts and in our homes. Now the third stage of the Bible's storyline is redemption. This is God's means of restoring God's people to God's best. God the Father sent His one and only Son to live a perfect life. This Son obeyed the discipline and instruction of His Father in all regards. He lived a life that we can never live, and He laid down that life by dying on a cross for sin, to pay the penalty of our rebellion, of our rejection, of our seeking to find our best in everything other than God. He rose three days later so that we might have new life in Him. He gave us hope. He gave us a promise that if we would turn away from this sinful pursuit of going after all of the world's best and find our soul's happiness in Him, that He would satisfy our every desire and that we would be eternally reconciled to our best for all eternity. He promises that. That's what's accomplished in redemption. We are restored to God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so what does this mean for our children and how we are to parent them towards their best? Well, that's what this verse is all about. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We can unpack this further. They need a Savior. They need to be taught and trained and nourished toward faith in God. Christ and parents, we are to lead them to that end. And the fourth stage of the biblical storyline is consummation. That when Christ comes again, he will fully and finally reconcile all things to himself. And we who have believed in him, who have trusted in him, will live forever in God's perfect world with our best. We get God's best forever. While those who have spent all of their lives trying to find their best, to find their hope, to find their satisfaction in all the world's best apart from God will spend eternity under His just condemnation. You see, we basically have two options there. We're all eternal. And the question becomes, will you receive God's best and live with God and His best for all eternity or will you continue to pursue the best that this world has to offer apart from God and result in eternal separation from God's best? When Christ returns, all corruption and all decay, all pain and sorrow and our sinful pursuit of God's gifts apart from God will be gone and we who are in Christ will be with our best forever. As that is the goal. That is the end for which God created the world. That's what Scripture tells us that every one of us are going to. He tells us that our souls are internal and we're heading in that direction. And so the question is, what are you going to settle for? What are you going to pursue as your best? What are you going to lead your children to pursue their best? Will it be Him or something less? So in these last few minutes, I've just given you an overview of the entire Bible. That's the message of the Bible in four words. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And you see how at every single stage, it all comes back to God. He is our best. And if God is committed to giving us His best, that doesn't mean earthly, temporary, defiled, fading materials or accomplishments. It means that God's best is God. And so the point of our parenting is to lead our children who are gifts from the Lord, but who are sinful and need a Savior and are eternal beings, not to the things of this world, but to God. That is the goal of all of human history. And if that is the goal of all of human history, then that has to be the greater priority to us as parents, more than sports or grades or jobs or grandkids. If we are truly going to be committed to pursuing the best for our children, that means God. It has to be Him. And so parents, 
We must be committed to God's plan. We have to be. If we want the best for our kids, God is their best. And that's what we must pursue. Now that's all overview, but now let's look at zero in on this text. Who does this passage call to train up our children? calls parents, particularly fathers. Notice that it doesn't say saints. It doesn't say the church. Right? The church was addressed in chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul talks to them specifically, the church in Ephesus. This, But Paul doesn't address the church or saints as a whole here. He doesn't say, saints, do not provoke the children who are in your congregation to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. No, he says fathers. Neither does this verse call church leaders. It doesn't say pastor. It doesn't say youth minister. It doesn't say children's ministry director. It doesn't say redeemer, taught, volunteer. The church leaders were mentioned in chapter 4, verse 11, and we recognize that as a church, we all have a part to play in the growth towards maturity in Christ. We all have a responsibility there, but this verse addresses parents. And so what that means is the primary disciplers of children are parents. This is not to be delegated out to the professionals. This is not to be handed off to willing volunteers. This is not to be dumped off on youth ministers with their separate hip meeting space and their own worship service and their own games and activities and agendas. God planned that parents bring up their children in the Lord. It has been that way from the beginning. From the beginning of the family. You guys realize that after the fall, after Adam and Eve sinned against God and they were, they were kicked out of the garden, they were separated from being in the presence of God, they continued to worship God. You see that in the way that they named their children, all in reference and reverence to God. You can see it in the fact that they taught their children how to worship, though they didn't do a very good job because... What we see is the first murder happened at a worship service, right? Cain and Abel. But nevertheless, it's been that way from the beginning. From the very beginning of mankind. The church and church leaders are to help. They are to equip. They are to facilitate this discipleship. And they are to make sure that spiritual orphans, that is, children whose parents are unbelievers and do not come to church, are cared for. But parents and fathers as heads and spiritual leaders of the home in particular. You've been given that charge. We've seen that in chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. You have the responsibility in particular to train up your children, to disciple your children, and you will be held accountable for how you shepherd your family. You cannot just abdicate that over to Redeemer Church. I don't feel like doing that. I'm kind of busy. I've got all these other responsibilities. Those guys seem to know what they're talking about. I'm just going to give them over to them. That'll be fine. No, you're still held accountable for that. You know, we, we've bought into this false notion of professionalism. That you've got to be professionally trained in order to be confident to do anything. But what is that really? That person paid to take some classes. That person read a few more books than you read on the issue. Is it impossible for you to grow in your knowledge and ability to do that? Is it really so unheard of to think that you might be able to read the books? And if you're that afraid, maybe take a class or two. We'll provide them. You won't have to pay for them. But it's your charge. So what if they've got a nice piece of paper and a frame on their wall? I mean, does that really make them better suited to disciple your children than the ones that God has placed them under and has given them this charge to discipline and instruct them in the Lord? 
And just practically. Let's just think practically for a minute. Even if your children are active in the church, in this church, you are regular attenders, you're members, you're committed to serving in this church. Let's just say that you need to realize that the average amount of time per year that a child has with a any kind of ministry leader, any kind of volunteer, and that's in a group setting, that's not as an individual, but in a group setting, the average is 40 hours per year. Now let's just say that you're really committed. You're here almost every single Sunday. Your community group is very, very intentional to disciple and instruct your kids. And so we're just going to, for good measure, double it. You get Your kids have 80 hours per year of instruction by someone in the church that is intentional for their discipleship. Do you know that the average busy American household has 3,000 hours per year with their children? 3,000 hours a year. 80 Versus 3,000. You see that? Do you realize how significant that is? I mean, who has more consistent time and opportunity? Who knows their children far better than some very well-meaning and thoughtful college student up in Cox? No amount of training, no degrees, no age graded curriculum, no coolness factor, no amount of money spent on programs, let alone surpass that gap between 80 and 3,000 hours a year. It just can't be done. You can never design a ministry good enough for that, to cover that. And if God's intention was for the church to train up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He wouldn't have given them to you. He would have just given them to the church. You wouldn't have to walk them upstairs. They'd just be popping out of the ground up there. Now, I know that we're having a lot of kids lately, and it kind of seems that's the case when you're out there. But let me try, just trust me here. Parents are taking them up there. And for almost two millennia, This is how the children were trained up in the Lord. Just a simple, quick survey of church history would easily show that the segmented, age-graded, programmatic approach to children and youth ministries that have been around for the last, have only been around for the last century. And in that last century, more money has been spent in the ministry of children in the last 100 years than in the history of the church, and yet it has produced the far Fewer results. Billions of dollars spent. Fewer Christians. Guys, I know it looks fancy. I know it looks well put together. I know it looks fun. But guys, it doesn't work. Alvin Reed, a seminary professor whose primary focus is on youth evangelism, wrote that the largest rise in full-time youth ministers in history has been accompanied by the biggest decline in youth evangelism effectiveness. Friends, the current common strategy for children and youth ministries is not working. And God is telling us why. He's telling us why. Don't get me wrong. I am, and we are committed to seeing your children come to Christ. We pray and we labor for that end. I want nothing more than for your children to see the glory of Christ. But age-graded classes and dumping tons of money into programs is not the way to do it. Training up parents to discipline their children is. Church leaders are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. To train up parents to make disciples of their children. But I want you to understand something. That the reason why Redeemer holds to a family equipping model for children and parents' ministry is not pragmatic. It's 
It's not because we're just looking for results. It's not simply because we think that it produces the most fruit. It's because this is God's plan for the family. This is God's plan for your family. It's right here. And who knows better what is best for your children than the one who is the best for your children? And He's telling us, listen, my best plan for your children's best involves you discipling your children. Your children need to see the glories of Christ displayed every day. Not just when they go to church once or twice a week to some building to hang out with a bunch of really hip people and play games with all of their friends. They need more than that. They need to see daily my parents worshiping and loving the Lord. They need to see my parents studying and loving and praying and leading and directing and just embracing Christ, seeing their need and dependence upon Him, and inviting me in to see it. Those spiritual orphans who are brought up in and around among us, they don't need to go to a bunch of activities to learn about Jesus. They need to come into our homes. They need to spend time with us, discipling our children, so that they might see what that looks like, and they might see what it means to live daily for Christ. That's what they need. They need to see people who love Jesus and who are willing to personally help them to know Him through the daily walk of life. This is not a program. You cannot program this in to one select strategy, one select time frame on your calendar. It doesn't work that way. It is day in and day out. It is every moment of every day. It is in family devotions, these family talks, but it is also in family walks as we are intentional to engage our children with the truth and beauty of Christ. Now when I talk about this today with people, there's often pushback from skeptics. You say, well, that sounds really good, Chad. That family equipping model, that sounds really good, but it just... It doesn't work. It won't work. It can't work. And I just want to respond to them. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Do you really think that the God of the universe didn't think this through? And honestly... Do you really think that God didn't consider the challenges of this day and age when He gave us this command? Do you really, really think that you know better than God? Now many times this is simply a response out of ignorance. It's just a failure to realize that for 1,900 years, this is the way children's ministry was done in the church. This is how children were trained up with far better results. Unfortunately, we tend to think that newer is better. And so most of us have only seen this segmented, programmatic model of ministry, and we haven't really seen family discipleship happening. We haven't seen it lived out in the church, and so we doubt that it will work. But again, friends, this is God's plan. And so isn't it better for us to trust Him and learn to obey Him. Another reason why we doubt this is God's plan for parents discipling their children is because of fear. That deep down we we question our own ability to train them. We we see our own inadequacies. We we realize our own lack of discipline and knowledge of God. And and we know that we cannot teach our children what we do not know. And so instead of pursuing those things, what we tend to do is just think, I'll just pass them off to somebody that might know a little bit better. I I really don't know the answers to this. I really don't know how to do this. I I really don't know. I just don't have all the technical ability. I haven't taken classes on this. So I'm going to pass them off to somebody who has. Something that's very specific for them. But do you realize that this just perpetuates the problem? This doesn't solve it. It perpetuates the problem. It is band-aid on measles. That feeling that you have of fear and inadequacy was intended by God to lead you to dependence upon Him. You see, God gave this command 
not just for the good of your children, but for you. For your best. And he's saying, listen, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have everything figured out. You just need to follow in faith. You are to be drawn into dependence, not by pushing your kids off on someone else, but by following God's plan, which is meant to draw you to Himself. And as you learn more about God, you bring your family along with you. Parents, fathers, you do not have to have all the answers. You simply are called to take the lead, to take the initiative, to go first. You go and you bring them along. It does not take a master's of divinity to read the Bible and pray with your children. You simply need to be the one to go first and have them follow. And this is God's plan, not just for your children's best, but for yours as well. It is meant to draw you to dependence upon Him, to grow into maturity in Christ. And we are here to equip you and to train you and to resource you to do what God has called you to do. And so, friends, stop living in fear and turn to Him. And if you look around at the families that are doing it, you'd see that it's working. Even here in this room, there are families who have been faithful to do this, and it is bearing fruit. Like Joa and Nella have memorized like all the catechism questions. They're ready to rattle those things off, and I'm excited to hear from them. I see fathers growing in their ability to lead their families. It's so encouraging. It is happening. It can be done. It will be done. By faith and dependence upon Him. But perhaps the biggest hindrance to living this passage out is that we, as parents, are more passionate about the things of this world than we are about Christ. We can't accomplish this if we are immersing ourselves in the things of this world. That if dads are more passionate about baseball swings than they are about teaching their kids the Word of God, we've missed the point. If mothers are more concerned about teaching their daughters how to dress and how to wear makeup than what it means to live with a quiet and gentle spirit, we have missed the point. And the danger here is that one day our sons and daughters are going to stand before the God of heaven with all of these things that we have told them are so important and so essential for a good life. And every one of those things is going to burn up in the fire. And our sons and our daughters are going to stand as beggars before God on that day. And it will be because of us. It will be because of us. So don't buy it. Don't immerse our kids in worldly pictures of success in such a way that we numb them to godly pictures of success so that they have no desire for it because it doesn't include fame. It doesn't have money. It doesn't have what we have exalted as the good life. Fathers, parents, we must bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That is their best. This is God's plan for us. And Lord, help us to carry it out. So how do we go about doing that? Well, this is the subject of so many books. I can't possibly cover that in the time that I have remaining. But let's look second at a bit of the process that God has for the family. God says, do not provoke your children to anger. Now this comes on the heels of the command that He has given in chapter 6, verses 1-3 through to children to obey their parents in the Lord for this is right. They are to honor their father and mother. Okay, And so what He's saying there is, parents, don't abuse the authority that has been given to you. 
This is not ultimately about you. Your children's obedience is not about you. It's about Christ. You, as their parents, are leading them to Him. And if you abuse this authority that you have been given, they will become angry and hate both you and Christ in their hearts. Now, parents, we've all been there. We've all been tempted to, and we've all sinned by making our authority as parents about us. You need to obey me. I'm in charge here. And we do it in a way that doesn't seek the glory of God and the good of our children to lead them to Him, but rather to seek our own glory and our own good so that we can get what we want. Perhaps we discipline them harshly. We're angry because of their disobedience to me and how that is reflected poorly upon me. And so I discipline them in anger. Well, if I am discipling them, and I'm when disciplining, you are discipling. If I'm discipling them in anger in that moment, of course it is going to provoke them to a heart of anger. Right? We can't expect that, that we could just discipline them in anger and then them not become angry. They're going to do what they see. I can't make it about me and then expect them to then love God. If, if we're going to avoid provoking them to anger, we must be sure that we do not discipline them out of anger. But there are other ways that we can provoke our children to anger as well. Another is unreasonable expectations. That we pile up lists of rules so high that they can't possibly even remember them, let alone keep them all. Robert E. Lee, when he was uh, president of Washington College, it's now Washington and Lee, when he became president there, they had this honor code, which was a list of rules for all the things that these students and cadets were supposed to do. And this thing was, was huge. The first thing he did as president, his very first act was to throw out the honor code. He got rid of it. And he replaced it with one sentence. We will at all times, act as Christian gentlemen. Now, his philosophy was this. Don't make more rules than you can enforce. And it led him to do it. But his vision statement, his mission there, pretty much summed it up, right? And what is left out? We will at all times act as Christian gentlemen. He set a vision, a course, a direction for that school that they could actually keep. And so, unreasonable expectations, too many rules. Or, or maybe you just don't clearly communicate what your expectations for them are. Right? They can't possibly keep your expectations if they don't know them. And if you haven't told them what they are, how can, how can they possibly obey you? Or maybe we have expectations that they're not capable of doing at their age. They're just not age-appropriate expectations. So, Will, if Will hits Claire, which she does quite a bit, you know, I'm trying to get Will to acknowledge what he is, 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 what he's done is a pretty big challenge. I'm trying to help him to see that his heart is sinful towards his sister and that he needs to turn away from his sin and, and believe in the gospel. Boy, you, I'm talking to a two-year-old. I, I'm lucky to get him to say, uh-huh, right? Uh, I mean, I would love for Will to say, yes, Dad. I realized that in that moment, I was loving that toy more than I was loving my sister. And so in an attempt to selfishly take that for myself and hate my sister, I went and I hit her and I hurt her because I was loving that toy more than the herd that, that is rebellious, that is foolish, that is selfish, that it doesn't make any sense. I am so sorry that that happened. May I please now turn and go to Claire and tell her the same? <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> just trying to get him to say sorry is a big deal. Or with regards to expectations, maybe deep down we're expecting perfection from them and we do not give them grace to make mistakes. If they can never meet our expectations of them, it will provoke them to anger. 
But we can also provoke them to anger just by our relationship, or maybe I should say lack of relationship with them. Boy, I, I, I catch myself doing this. I have five kids, and trying to spend time with them and love them well is really, really hard. There's just a lot of them, right? But if my only interactions with my kids are to yell at my kids or to discipline my kids, if my every interaction with Gabe is just to tell him what not to do, I, you know, I'm going to provoke him to anger. If I'm more concerned about their performance than I am about their hearts, they will become angry. If I fail to show them love and affection so that they, can, they know that they can come to me, they will become angry. If I don't practice what I preach, the dad says do this, but then he does this, and then he tells me to do the same thing, and then I have to do that, they will become angry. If I don't admit my mistakes, if I don't confess my sin and ask for forgiveness, they will become angry. And in the end, not only will they potentially become angry with us, but they might in all likelihood become angry toward God. If we make our parenting about their behaviors rather than their hearts, or if we make it about us rather than about God, we will provoke them to anger. Anger towards us and anger towards God. But we have been called to discipline them in a way that leads them toward God, not away from God. It's not about them fitting into the pattern that we have for their lives. It's we discipline them out of love because they are missing out on God's pattern for their lives. The goal is not better behavior towards their parents and others, but hearts that love and desire to obey Christ. And friends, do you see the difference? That is a massive difference. Now, children... I do need to say this to you. This doesn't mean that you can pull out the anger card. Okay? No child likes to be disciplined. None of them. Right? And so you can't, when your parents are trying to discipline you, say, Mom and Dad, I'm becoming angry, and you are outside of Ephesians 6 on this one. Please stop immediately. Right? Don't even try it. That's not what it's about. No discipline is pleasant at the time. And so you must trust God that He knows what is best for you. You must trust that your parents love you. And at times, you may need to extend grace towards your parents because they might fail you in discipline because they are, after all, sinners too. So what does it look like? What, what, what do parents faithfully discipling their children look like? Well, again, classes. We need classes for this. I can't do this in a sermon. So I'm just going to briefly break down what these things are saying, and hopefully that will get us started in this process as we walk through this together. Okay? First, we are to bring them up. Okay? That word there means to feed or nourish them. It's actually the same word we see in chapter 5, verse 29, where husbands are to nourish and cherish their wives as their own bodies, just as Christ does the church. And so there's your example we are to feed our children and nourish our children and raise our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We're not simply to physically protect and provide for their well-being. We are to labor to nourish their souls as well. And so from their birth throughout their lives, we are to feed them and raise them and care for them so that they grow up into Christ. That word discipline there means training, teaching, correction, or instruction. That word instruction in our verse means admonition, warning, or exhortation. So there's an overlap between these words, but basically this, this refers to the whole training and education of our children. It's to be both formative in that it shapes them, and it is to be corrected in that it changes their hearts. It's leading them and teaching them about the Lord and how to study His Word so that they might learn how to live in obedience to Him. It's cultivating their minds and their hearts so that they might know how to live and think from a Christian worldview as they engage with the unbelieving culture around them. It's caring for and training them, correct, working to correct their mistakes, not by covering it up or glossing it over or doing their homework for them, but helping them to change practically by learning how to do it correctly and relationally through repentance and faith. 
It's admonishing them and reproving them and exhorting them and disciplining them. Not just their outward behaviors, but primarily their hearts. You are trying to lead their hearts to God. It is helping them to love Christ and to see themselves as God sees them in Christ. It is helping them to image the God who made them. And we pray that by His grace, save them for His glory and for their joy. It is making disciples of our children. Then making disciples means that they then make disciples. And so this discipline and instruction of the Lord then releases them and propels them towards mission so that they might go out and make disciples of all nations. It is training them not to depend upon you for everything, but upon lifelong dependence upon the Lord. That's what we're called to be. And finally, we are to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Meaning that the Lord sets the tone. The Lord sets the standards. The Lord sets the rules. Not you, not me, and not our culture. It is to be His way, not our way. You are not the authority on discipline and instruction of children. And neither is Dr. Phil, and neither is the school district, nor anyone else. Only the Lord. That means that we need to seek Him. The One who made us and sustains our lives. The One who calls us to His discipline and instruction. The One who loved us so much that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His is a loving discipline. His is a disciplining love. If we are going to follow His command, we must ever live in dependence upon Him. And so practically, if I can tell you what to do and where to go from here, how do we get started down this road? Well, first, it just begins with prayer. It begins with seeking the face of God. It begins in dependence upon Him. And so we pray for wisdom to know how to walk in His commands. Second, we seek His Word. Right? If you are, are to bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord in a way that does not lead them toward anger toward you and God, you must learn about God's heart. You must learn about His purposes and His instructions for how you're to go about doing that. And again, that takes far more than a sermon. That means you daily seeking the Lord. His Word is sufficient for you. He has given us all that we need for life and godliness. And so pursue Him in that. And third, parents, I just say to you, you have to set an example in your home. Right? Your, your children won't do what you don't do. Or if they do, they do it in spite of you. And so lead them to Christ by submitting yourself to the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And fourth, take your children along with you. Instruct them along the way. Discipline them with a heart of love that is growing in the discipline of the Lord. Teach them how to repent and believe by repenting and believing. Let them see that your charge and instruction for their obedience comes from a heart that desires to obey Christ, that longs for them to pattern their lives after Him, not after you that is pursuing the glory of God and their good, not my own selfish ends. And as you are faithful to do that, humbly growing in your ability to grow in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, they will see the glories of Christ. And by His grace, they'll want to follow. Because parents display the glories of Christ by faithfully discipling their children. Let's pray together. Father, it's hard not to be challenged and convicted by this message. And so Lord, I pray that, that it would impart hope. I pray that we would trust in your wisdom, and your goodness, and your rule. I pray that we would look in dependence upon You to know how to go about doing this. 
We pray for repentance and faith. I pray for hearts that are more passionate about Christ than they are about the world. God, we thank You that You give us grace, that You have made us sufficient in Christ, that You will equip us to do what You have called us to do. So Lord, I I pray not for self-condemnation, but I pray for gospel-driven motivation that we would seek disciple our kids for your glory and for our joy. And for his name we pray. Amen.